Well, again, good to see you guys all here this morning. Um, it's been quite a week for our country. I'm, I'm sure most of you guys know kind of what's been going on. Um, probably most of you better than me, uh, e- even, although I have to admit I've been paying quite a bit of attention the last, uh, the last week or so. Um, and so, you know, just with everything that's going on, I, I kind of thought I would, I would change gears again, and I would, Saturday morning, I decided I was going to preach something different. Maybe that was kind of late Friday night. And um, so I want to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Um, but just kind of before we get into that, I just, just thought I'd start by just talking a little bit about what's going on in our country, the, you know, the, the blockade at the Coots border has been um, ended. The RCMP and, and the Ottawa police and the Ontario uh, provincial police have, have pretty much cleared out the protests that was going on in front of Parliament. There was three weeks of peaceful protesting, and it was ended with armed military-style police, pepper spray, billy clubs, uh, tear gas, and even mounted police uh, I saw a video, and, and maybe you saw this video as well, with an older lady with a walker got trampled by a horse, and um, thankfully she's she's okay. She has a dislocated shoulder, but trampled by a horse. Um, Trudeau has granted himself dictatorial powers under this emergency act. Um, he tried nothing over the three weeks to disarm the situation. He didn't talk to the protesters. I think what could have been a, a, a nice conversation to kind of hear the protesters out turned into a really a terrible situation. Um, he just escalated the thing. He wouldn't answer any questions in Parliament of this week if you kind of saw what was happening there. Someone pointed out the other day that, that Hitler and the Nazi party passed a similar, similar temporary law that was called the Enabling Act that allowed Hitler to pass laws without going through Parliament, and that's how Hitler became the dictator in Nazi Germany. They did it in in Hitler's day, they did it to address fires, and I believe they uh, blamed those fires on the Communist Party, and so they kind of used a situation like that to grant Hitler temporary powers, and that's what led to everything that happened in Nazi Germany. And it seems like the same thing is happening in our country. Uh, and of course, both Hitler and Trudeau said that they're just going to let that go for a temporary amount of time, right? It's just going to be a temporary measure. Well, I don't know about you, but I just have no faith in the government when they say something's going to be a temporary measure, maybe just a couple of weeks or something. It's been two years into a couple of weeks to flatten COVID-19. So we'll see what happens. We're, we're losing our freedoms. And I, I genuinely fear for what could happen and what is happening in our country. Our prime minister has only increased his rhetoric, divided the nation even further. The media has lied to the public about what's really happening, creating, creating further division and hatred. And if you have spent just a, a few minutes on Twitter, and looked, looked on down some of those kind of comment chains and see what people are saying. You can see the division and the hatred in our company, uh, in our, in our country, not our company. The media, with very few exceptions, has become the propaganda arm of the government. And worse yet, the Ottawa Police Department has lied about what's happening on their Twitter account. They just lie after lie. They're going the, they come with, with tear gas and, and gas masks and then they blamed the people for shooting tear gas at the police, which, um, anyway, the, it's just, it, it's really a terrible precedent for our country. The, um, some pastor friends of mine were arrested. Another pastor friend that was in Ontario, um, bent down, got on his knees, hands up in the air, and was beaten instead of arrested. And then the protesters kind of grabbed him back through the line and, and took him away. And so um, peaceful protesters being beaten in our country, and it's just it's just wicked and unjust, and it's it's really sickening. Parliament, which is where the the truckers were, is the is the one place in Canada where we're supposed to be allowed to have a peaceful protest. It's the one legal protected place that we should be allowed to protest. 
But instead, the protesters were beaten with rods and batons and pepper sprayed and tear gassed. And so I want to take just a, a bit of time. Uh, uh, I want to take you to a passage that that maybe should help us think about what's happening in our country and and what's what's happening kind of broader and how we should respond. Uh, it, it's hard to see the wicked triumph. It, it's hard to watch our country and our freedoms slip away. <clears throat> and I've often felt this week like I, I don't know what to do or I don't know how to help. And I've been I've been thinking about it a lot. What do we do? How do we help? How can we um, work for good in our country and in our in our land? And I, I think this passage that we're going to look at will help us a little bit. So Jesus told us that that there would be days like this. Jesus even told us how to respond and what to do. And so I want you to turn to Luke 17. And, and we're going to focus on really on Luke 18, 1 to 8. But I want to start reading at Luke 17, 22. <clears throat> so Luke 17, 22. This is Jesus speaking here. He's about to speak. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, excuse me. I'll start with where Jesus is talking again. The the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is, in the, is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And then chapter 18, verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now this might seem like a a bit of a strange passage to go to, but I I think it'll be quite helpful. I called this message longing for justice. Longing for justice. Again, chapter 17, verse 22 says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And the Legacy Standard Bible translates that, 
The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. There's going to be days of longing for the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but I I know for myself, I have never longed for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ like I have in these last days. These past two years, there's been a uh, just a, a new desire to see Christ come and, and reign on the earth to conquer his enemies, to, to crush the wicked and to bring in everlasting righteousness. When we see the evil happening in the world, we long for justice. And we know that when Christ returns, everything will be made right. Everything that is happening in this world will be turned right, and it'll be righteous, and it'll be a glorious day. And we long for that. We want that. And Jesus told us that we would long for days like that. And verse 25 gives us some insight into why Jesus' disciples might long for his coming. Verse 25, it says, but first... He, that is Jesus, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So just as Jesus suffered many things in his generation, so we are going to be called to suffer many things in our generation. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. For if they called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If Jesus suffered in this world, then we shouldn't be surprised if we suffer in this world either. If Jesus faced injustice, then we should expect that we might face injustice as well. If they called Jesus the, the, you know, and, and said everything that he's doing is by Belzebul, the prince of the demons, then how much more will they say that we are demonic evil and, and, and turn and malign us? Now in the passage in Luke, After verse 22, Jesus says that when he comes, it's going to be obvious, like lightning in the sky. When Jesus returns, everyone is going to see it. Every eye will see him. He will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, according to Matthew 24 and verse 30. And so when Jesus returns, he's going to destroy his enemies, judge the living, and establish a righteous government on the earth. But before that return, life is going to continue as normal. That's what that passage is talking about. They're, they're going to be marrying and giving in marriage, and all of these things are going to just kind of continue like normal. Now, I'm not super confident on the timing of all that Jesus says here. Jesus returns, we know, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. I know that for sure. Is Jesus here talking about the, a period early in the tribulation where, where, where people are unaware that they're in the tribulation? That could be. I think, and again, I'm not super confident about this, but I think it's most likely that Jesus is talking here about the time that we are in now. Or he's, he's maybe condensing the entire tribulation and second coming together. And I, I don't necessarily want to get into the timing of all of this. But what is clear is that the wicked world will continue as they have until all of a sudden it's too late. They're going to be marrying and giving in marriage. And just like it was in Noah's day or just like it was in Lot's day, all of a sudden it's going to be too late and judgment is going to come upon them. All of a sudden they're going to be in the tribulation or or the Lord's going to return and they are going to be in big trouble. There's no early warning system for the coming of the Son of Man. There's no notice that's going to be given. All of a sudden the world is going to recognize that judgment has come upon them. And again, we see that in verse 26. Look at it again. It says, And just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And until that day when the Son of Man is revealed, we as believers will long for His coming. 
We'll see the wicked world just like Noah did. And we'll, we'll live in the wicked world and, and dwell in it just like Lot did. And our job, our task is to preach the gospel to them and to call them to repent. But with Noah and Lot, just like they did, we will also face the world's persecution. We'll face, um, the, the rejection and persecution and, and, um, wicked words of the world. And in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that difficulty in this world, we will long for our deliverance. We'll, we'll long for the return of the Son of Man. And that's where this parable comes in. And so we're going to look at this under three kind of headings. Um, the first heading is what I called number one, the meaning. So the meaning of the parable, this is chapter 18, verse one, number one in our outline. The, this parable begins with an introduction that gives us the meaning of the parable. Jesus starts by telling us what he's talking about, and then he gives the parable. There, there's no need to guess here what Jesus is talking about. Um, Luke gives us the interpretation of the parable right up front. And so look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now this parable comes right on the heels of what we just read in verses 22 and following and of chapter 17. The, Jesus is, is, is gonna come, we're, we're waiting for his return, and, and as we await his return, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. We ought always to pray in the manner that we are taught to pray in this parable. This parable then teaches us to pray and not lose heart. Now, does anyone need that right now? Anyone need some encouragement to, to pray and not lose heart in the midst of what's happening in the world? I know that for myself, I do. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is for the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is for people who, who live for him and love him. And we, in, in this time in which we are in, this time before the coming of Christ, we are to, to pray and not lose heart. We ought always to pray and to not lose heart. We ought always to not lose heart. And this is what we do when we long for the day, when we desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but we do not see it. And so first the text says we ought always to pray. Now other scriptures tell us this same thing more generally. But as we'll see in our study today, this prayer is actually a very specific prayer that we're to pray. We're to pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're specifically to pray for in this context of Luke 18. But other scriptures teach us that we should always pray, and they, they just tell us just generally to pray. And so I just want to give you some of these. Romans 12.12 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's a great verse for us right now. Rejoice in hope. Do you have hope? Rejoice. Be patient in tribulation. We know that it's not going to last forever and then be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and then Paul adds, and for me also that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And so we're to pray at all times with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert, kind of knowing what's going on, making supplication for all the saints and even praying specifically for gospel ministers that words would be given them that they might proclaim the gospel in this time. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And the legacy standard translation of that same verse, Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so clearly from those verses, we can see that we are to be people of prayer. Now we could ask here, well, what is prayer? 
What is prayer? And, and most broadly defined, prayer is just simply communion with God. It's responding to God in, in ways that he has approved in his word, responding to God with praise, responding to him with thanksgiving, or making requests of him, asking him for help. It's, it's this communion with God, this kind of two-way interaction with God where he is working and we respond with praise or thanksgiving or asking for help or asking for others. John Bunyan defined prayer. He has a great definition of prayer that's really focused on, on, on the kind of prayer that we normally think of, making requests to God, supplication. And here's what John Bunyan described prayer as then. It's, quote, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. And that's John Bunyan's definition of prayer, a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. And that's from his book called Praying in the Spirit. And the whole rest of the book just unpacks that definition. But that's what we're to do. We're to, we're to, and we're to do this constantly for ourselves and for others around us. But here, as I said, the, the, in, in our text in, in, in uh, Luke 18, this is a specific prayer that we're to pray. We're to pray for the return of the Lord. And this particular prayer, we ought, the text says, always to pray. This is very similar to Luke 21, Verses 34 and 35, after again describing the tribulation, here's what the Lord says, Luke 21, 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And the day come upon you and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the Lord here in Luke 21 is speaking to his disciples as representatives of Israel and he tells them to pray for strength to endure the end times. And as a church, we believe that, that we will escape that time by the rapture, but, but we're still to pray for our deliverance and we're to be watchful and we're to be ready for the coming of the Lord, for, for his any moment return. And so if we look back at our text again, 18.1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The second thing that we see here then is to not lose heart. We ought always to not lose heart. And that word means to lose motivation. To lose motivation in, in our conduct or activity. To lose enthusiasm. That, that word means to be discouraged. And it also has the idea of being afraid in a, in a great difficulty. We're not to be afraid in difficulty. Fear then sometimes causes us to cease to continue, just like the, the loss of motivation would, would cause us to, to kind of give up. That is, that is not to characterize us in difficult times. To not lose heart then means to continue doing what is right. Paul told the Ephesians not to lose heart over his suffering. And in his imprisonment in Ephesians 3.13, same word there. 2 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. We don't lose our motivation. Our enthusiasm doesn't, doesn't kind of wax thin. We, we do not lose heart. And again, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is what Jesus tells us that we ought always to do in the face of difficulty. Pray and not lose heart. Don't be discouraged. We ought never to lose our motivation to serve the Lord. It's, it's so important that we don't lose our motivation to serve the Lord no matter what is happening in the world. 
And so that's the meaning of the parable that Luke kind of gives us up front. Now let's look at the parable itself. And I, I called this, you know how I like to have my alliteration. This is the meanie. So we had the meaning and now we have the meanie. This is the, the bad judge. And so it's nice to sometimes give you guys a little, little comedy relief as I try to give you an outline here. The, the meanie in verses two to five. Look at the, look, look at the text there. 18 verse two. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so the judge in the, the certain city is meant to teach us about praying and not losing heart. This judge, he doesn't fear God or respect man. And those would be the two things that would most likely keep a judge honest. The fear of God and the respect of men. The fear of God in Israel is also tied to the law. God gave Israel the law, and so to the fear of God was, would also mean that one would honor the law. God gave the law, and so to fear God would mean respecting and upholding the law. But this judge did not fear God, neither did he respect man. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't have a, and this word means he didn't have a proper sense of shame. This is a, this is a bad judge. He, ha- he has no shame. He doesn't, he doesn't care what people think. He's gonna do whatever suits him the best. And this is very much what we have today in our, in our culture, in our, in our, in our country. Judges who don't fear God. Judges who don't respect men. And, and therefore, they don't uphold the law. They don't uphold the charter of rights and freedoms. Our laws in Canada and the U.S., they were based on the laws in Scripture. But our society has abandoned God, and, and therefore we've also abandoned this proper sense of right and wrong that, that the fear of God would give us. And without God as the foundation for the law, we're losing our sense of right and wrong. And the, the charter of rights is no longer the, the proper foundation and so we see judges making decisions based on, not, not based on a, a proper interpretation of the charter and rights, but based on what they think the people want to hear, or, or based on what will be expedient for their career. But anyways, the, the judge in our parable is an unjust judge, and Jesus calls him as much in verse 6. Look at, look at verse 6 there, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. That word unrighteous there is unjust, means wicked, someone who does wrong. This is unrighteous. This unjust judge is, is implored for justice by the, the widow in the parable. So she, she comes to this unrighteous, unjust judge, and she's asking him to give her justice. Now, a widow, at least in the ancient Near East, a widow was a very vulnerable woman, a woman that would, would, would be the one that, that was supposed to be shown mercy and compassion, one that we're, that the, the community was to care for. And she kept coming to the judge, and that's, that's in the imperfect tense, and that indicate, indicates a continual past tense coming. She was in the past, she was coming, and she was continually coming to the judge, and, and as she was continually coming to him, she said to him in verse 3, Give me justice against my adversary. She kept coming with this request for justice. She wanted the law to be upheld. She wanted what was right to happen. That's what she means by justice there. She wanted her adversary, whoever he was, to be punished appropriately according to what was in the law. She wanted righteousness to be done, and she kept coming with that request, and she didn't lose heart. She says, give me justice, and she kept coming and asking, and she didn't lose heart. In verse 4, it says that for a while he refused, and that's why she had to keep coming. Literally, it's, it's there, he was not wanting to 
for a time. He didn't, he didn't desire to. He was unwilling. And that's also in the imperfect tense, a kind of continual past tense thing. He, he didn't want to do it. He was unwilling for a time. And so there was a, a standoff between the widow and the judge. She kept coming. He kept refusing. But then he said to himself in verse four, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. He's going to give her justice after all, not, not because he's just, but because he doesn't want the bother. She's, she's beginning to wear him out. She's, she's kind of wearying him. He, he, he's tired of this continual meeting with this lady. And so he just wants to get this over with and, and kind of get her off his back. And you see there how selfish this man is. He's got no concern for the righteous cause of the widow, the one that he should have concern for. No concern at all for her, but only concern for himself. But because of her continual coming, he eventually does give her justice. And that's the parable. Now again, this is to teach us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so that was number two, the meanie. And now let's, let's kind of bring this together now under number three. This is the message. And the Lord brings this together for us in verses six to eight. So number three, the message in verses six to eight. Look at verse six and seven. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The Lord says here that we need to hear, and we need to hear the, specifically the unjust judge. That unjust judge gave the widow justice, even though he didn't fear God or respect men. And if an unjust judge would do that, how much more will God bring justice? This is what we call a a how much more parable. How much more will God give us justice? Right? He is just. He's not unjust like this other guy. He is a just God. Genesis 18.25, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. And he expects in that context, he expects the judge of all the earth to do what is just. Deuteronomy 32.4 talks about God as the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is just. He is upright. That's his very nature and his character and his being. All of his ways, everything that he does is justice. He is faithful and he's without iniquity and he is just and upright. Psalm 9 verses 7 to 9 says this, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And so we see that God is a a, a just God. His throne is justice. He judges the world righteously. He judges the people in uprightness. And the oppressed, is they, they can come to him as their stronghold in times of trouble. Now to kind of go back to the parable then, if an unjust, uncaring judge would grant a widow justice, how much more will God give us justice? He cares about us, right? Not like the the unjust judge who didn't care about the widow at all. The Lord cares about us in the context we are his elect. And that word elect means that he chose us. And that word is one that that we need to wrestle with because it's in our Bible. God chose some people. We never see in Scripture that, that God chose everyone. He chose a certain group of people. And I, and I just want to take you to a couple passages on this. Go to Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 
2, 13 and 14, it says, but we, and this is Paul speaking, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word there in verse 13, God chose you as the first fruits, that's a, that's a different word than the one in Luke 18. The, the, the word in Luke 18 for chose is the more common word in scripture, but, but this is a word that, that simply means chose as well. God chose the Thessalonians as the first fruits to be saved. Now, Paul might have used this word for God's choice because it, it was used, at least in, in later history, it was used for, for picking fruit, for, for kind of choosing and, and, and picking fruit off a tree. God chose the, Thess- the Thessalonians as the first fruits. And notice what it says there. God chose the Thessalonians to be saved. They were chosen to be saved, or the, the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible translates that. He chose them for salvation. God chooses to salvation or for salvation, not, not because of salvation, but he chooses unto salvation. And Paul gives thanks here because God did this. God chose them and, and he called them then through the gospel. <clears throat> So God saved the Thessalonians through the gospel, and he, he did that because he chose them. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll see almost the same thing again in chapter 1. So 1 Thessalonians 1, um, starting at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And there's that same word there. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And notice again that, that Paul gives thanks for the choosing of the Thessalonians. And, and in scripture, you'll always see this. Whenever you see that God is choosing, you're going to see thankfulness there. It's not going to be, it's not going to be bitterness. It's not going to be upsetness. It's going to be thankfulness that God has chosen these people for salvation. And so whenever you see that, that choosing, scripture sees this as something to be thankful to God for. And Paul gives thanks, verse four, because he knows that the Thessalonians are loved by God. And he knows that God loves them because God chose them. And he knows God chose them because they received the gospel. Now, a a lot of people, I think, struggle with this when they start to find out about the doctrine of election and that God chooses some people and they wonder if they're chosen. But I would just say, don't, don't worry about whether or not you're chosen. You can, you can never know the secret counsel of God before the foundation of the world. What, what we should be concerned about and, and what Paul looks to as, as evidence that God chose these people and that God loves these people is how they receive the gospel. And so don't worry if you are chosen or not. Just worry about, and, and maybe worry is not the right word, but be concerned that you understand the gospel and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And so do you want to know if you're chosen? Well, ask yourself if you understand the gospel. Ask yourself if you've come to Jesus Christ and, and, and come to him as a living person who's able to save you and make you right with God. If you want to know if you're chosen, ask yourself, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Or ask yourself if you've turned away from sin and that you now love God and want to glorify Him and live for Him in this world. That's how you can know if you're chosen, if you've trusted and believed the gospel because it's only chosen people that come to Christ in salvation. It's only those that God chose who would desire to live their lives for Christ and to follow Him. 
And if you, if you can say yes to those things that you understand the gospel and you've come to Christ and you've trusted him and you've turned away from sin and you love God now and you want to glorify him and live for him, then you too can be thankful with Paul that he chose you to be saved and that he loved you with an everlasting love. And if he loved you and chose you and saved you, then you are justified and you are adopted into his family. To be justified means that God sees you not as a sinner, but as righteous in and through Jesus Christ. And God relates to you as though you were perfectly righteous. And then God adopts us as his own children into his family. Now, the reason I'm I'm emphasizing this is, is because I, I want you to, to realize here as we go back to the parable and think about it, you are not to God some annoying widow that you don't really, that he doesn't really care about that's asking for justice. Instead, you are God's own children. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have believed the gospel, God chose us. We are his elect. He loves us. We are his children. And surely then, Jesus assures us that God will give us justice. He will answer our prayer, even even if it seems like we need to cry out day and night for it. And so God doesn't treat us like like the unjust judge treats the widow. God loves us. And he's concerned about us. He cares about us. He, he knows what's happening in the world. And to kind of see this, I, I want to go to Psalm 56. And so if you would, just, just take your Bibles and let's look at Psalm 56. <clears throat> now what, what first kind of attracted me to Psalm 56 here was verse 8, where it says there, you have kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? But I thought as I read the whole psalm in the context, I just I want to read this whole psalm. It's just so helpful for us right now as we think about what's going on in the world. Um, I'm going to skip the, the subscript, which is also part of the scripture. But starting in verse 1, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. And I'll just stop there for a minute. You see, David is in a, in a difficult situation. There's oppressors attacking him. They, they, they hate him. They're, they want to hurt him. He's even afraid at times of what they're doing. They're, they're thinking evil towards him. And then in verse 7, will they escape? You know, God's justice is going to come on them. The the wrath, David asked for God's wrath to come on the people. (coughs) And then in verse 8, he says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David recognizes that in the the difficulty of what he's going through is his inability to sleep at night, the the tears that he has cried, God is recording everything and he's very attentive to the needs of his people. Verse 9 says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? God keeps our tears in a bottle and all our troubles are in his book and he will avenge us because he is for us. And we need to remember that in these times. So again, going back to to Luke 18. Luke 
Luke 18, verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And these questions here in verse 7 are rhetorical questions, and, and the answer is yes to them. Yes, God will give justice. And no, God will not delay long over us. Or, or we could say in the words of verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. God will answer us quickly. He will answer our prayers for justice. Now we know the full and final answer to those prayers will be when Christ returns. And we should be praying for that. That's what, that's what this text is teaching us. We should be praying for the return of Christ. And in a sense, every groan, every sigh, every tossing, every, every hardship is a, is a prayer for Christ to return as we go through this wicked world. And we should pray then according to what's written in Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then John says, amen. Come Lord Jesus. That should be our prayer. We should be ready for Christ to come and we should be asking him, Come, Lord Jesus. And Paul said similarly in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's what we are to be. We're to be people who love and long for and look for his appearing. Paul endured, he persevered, he kept the faith in a wicked and persecuting world. And the Lord would soon return and, and reward him. He was going to die and, and he would go to his reward. The righteous judge, as he says, will, will greet him. But not only him, this is also for all who loved his appearing. And so Paul is a great example for us. He persevered to the end. Paul is one who prayed and did not lose heart. And then as we look at verse 8 of our text, this final question is meant to, to stick with us. We're meant to kind of, that question is just kind of meant to ring out in the air. Look at it again, verse 8. I tell, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Will he return to people who have the kind of faith that he calls for in this passage? Will he find us praying for his return, praying for justice? When, when Jesus returns, will he find us not losing heart? Will he find us trusting him and believing him to give us justice and to give it to us speedily? Now again, we don't have a, a guarantee that we will have perfect justice on this earth until the return of Christ. We're not necessarily promised in this world a, a righteous government, but still it's, it's right for us as citizens of Canada and as Christians to work towards righteousness and to pray for our government. It, it's right for us to keep coming to God and to ask him for justice and to ask him for justice even now in this time. Micah 6.8 says, kind of summarizes the law for us this way. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We're to be people who do justice, who pursue justice, who make it happen. And this would involve talking then to our elected representatives, sending emails, even protests. There's actions that we can take now to, to do justice. And by that, I mean to stand for our charter of rights and freedoms, to uphold our charter of rights and we're to do this peacefully, but, but I think we're beyond the point now of just kind of ignoring what's happening in the world. We're, we're beyond the point where we can just kind of live comfortably in Lacrida and just kind of do nothing about this. If we don't work for our freedoms now, I think we would lose them or we could lose them very soon. 
But second, I think we're to pray like never before. We need to pray for our country and our government and our media and the people of Canada. The people have been deceived by the media and by the government. And there's literally people literally begging the government to take away our freedoms in exchange for their supposed safety. And these people are deceived and we need to pray for them and, and, and have mercy on them. And others are intentionally deceiving and we need to pray for their repentance or that the Lord would, would stop them from their deception. And we can pray and, and we should pray imprecatory prayers. Do you know what imprecatory prayers are? Prayers of judgment on our nation and on our leaders. And just to kind of show you that, I want you to go back to Psalm 94. Remember when we looked at Psalm 94? I think that was some other time when the government was kind of taking away our freedoms. And we, we went and kind of did an extended Sunday morning in Psalm 94. Psalm 94 starts out calling on the God. Oh, oh, it says, Oh Lord, God of vengeance. Oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. You can see that, that the psalmist here is not afraid to ask the Lord to judge the wicked. He, he says to him in the next verse, how long, O Lord, shall, shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And so he, he brings to the Lord's attention the wickedness and the evil that's happening in the world. And he calls on those people to repent and to turn away from their sin. And he ends in verse 23, he says, He, that is the Lord, will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And so we are, we are called even in times like this to pray imprecatory prayers. Now, we should pray for the nation for repentance. We should pray that the gospel would go forth. We should pray that the people will see their sin and turn from it and, and turn to God and Jesus Christ. But we should also pray with that, that if they will not turn, that God would judge the wicked and deliver us from the wicked, deliver us from our oppressors. So we should pray for repentance for our leaders and for the media or for their judgment. And as we pray, I would encourage you to remember some of these prayers. Psalm, or sorry, Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we see that that kind of thing answered in Ezra chapter 6 verse 22 and it says this there and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel in Ezra's day the the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria to to benefit the work of the house of God Again, Ezra 7, 27 and 28, Ezra says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord was on me and I gathered leading men of it from Israel to go up with me. Again, the Lord... Um, put something into the heart of the king that was a, a blessing to the people of God. In Daniel 4, 34 and 35, remember that whole Nebuchadnezzar situation? God judges Nebuchadnezzar and, and makes him eat um, grass like an ox and his fingernails grew all long and everything. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 4, but later on, the Lord brings Nebuchadnezzar back to his senses. And he says, at the end, this is Daniel 4.34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand 
or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king, but the Lord turned his heart to recognize that God is sovereign in this world, not Nebuchadnezzar. And so God can change Trudeau's heart. God can change, and it's not just Trudeau, it's the entire government system of our country is corrupt and wicked. God can change them or God can remove them. He can remove all the corrupt politicians. He can change the whole country if he wants to, but he's going to do it through our prayers. In fact, even as the wicked um, uh, plan make, make counsel against the Lord, he laughs at their wicked plans. This is Psalm 2. It asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then Psalm 2, verse 4, the next verse says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord can change what's happening in our country, but he's going to do it through our prayers. And we need to pray for the people of this country that they would turn from their sin, that the gospel would go forth, that that we would have a revival, a transformation. It's got to start with the people, even even the people that very much support our freedom. They need to be saved. And so we need the gospel to go forth to them. Jesus tells us we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, let's let's pray. Let's pray this week. The you know um, they, they they tell the story about uh, John Knox and Queen Mary. And Mary, in, in her day, the queen was, was more afraid. This is a quote. I am more afraid of his prayers than an army of 10,000 men. And I think that's how Justin Trudeau should feel if, if he knew what was really going on. That, that he would be more afraid of our prayers. And we can do more by our prayers than by anything else. Through our prayers, God can transform this country But we need to be people that when the Lord returns, that we are always praying for his return, for his justice, and not losing heart in the midst of it, because the Lord can work powerfully through our prayers, and ultimately Christ is going to come and make everything right, and it's on that that we need to set our hope and our encouragement. Let's pray now. Father, we just thank you for our time in your word, and we thank you that you give us what we need in your word. Father, we pray for ourselves, first of all, that you would strengthen us, make us people of prayer, teach us, Lord, to pray. Lord, we want our prayers to be like the prayers of John Knox, that the the rulers of this world would be more afraid of our prayers than an army of 10,000 men. And Father, we recognize that it's not our prayers that are so powerful, but it's you that is so powerful. You are more powerful than everything that's going on in this world. And so, Father, we pray for Canada, first of all, and we pray and ask that your gospel would go forth. We pray, Father, that, that your word would go forth and that you would bring conviction on this country and turn us back to you. But, Father, if, you, if, if the people won't repent and, and that's not your plan, we ask, Father, that you would judge our wicked rulers, that you would judge them in such a way that we would know that you have done it, and that this world and this country would know that you have done it. Remove them from office, Father, and give us righteous rulers. Let us live peaceably and quietly in this world, we ask. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us justice from our adversary, even recognizing that our ultimate adversary and our ultimate war isn't with flesh and blood, but it's with rulers and principalities and all the hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so, Father, we pray that you would change this country. But if not, Father, then we pray, thirdly, that you would strengthen us and help us to live for you in this world that we would not lose heart, but we would continue to be faithful, that we would joyfully accept even the plundering of our goods like we read about in Hebrews, and that we would joyfully serve you no matter what comes in, in this world. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength and grace for that. And we thank you, Father, that we know that you will answer these prayers. 
because you are for us and you are a just and a righteous God, one who hates wickedness and evil and loves your chosen people. You love us, Father, and we thank you that all things work together for good to those who love you. And we love you, Father, because you have first loved us, have loved us. So we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.